Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. We are up and recording now. I see the red <laughs> button is there. So, Anthony, thank you for coming on. Uh, you're, up, you're up in Minnesota, right? You're at the Mail Club? Correct. Yep. Very good. Yeah. So I got to finally meet you at what was it, Low Carb Denver? I think is where I saw Paleo, you. Paleo, Paleo FX. Oh, Paleo FX. Never mind. I couldn't remember. I've been doing doing a lot of recently. So that's <laughs> yep. uh, you know that's pretty uh, pretty interesting. I was uh, what was I going to say? I was I was going to say Zach. I ran into a guy yesterday, uh, uh, a good friend of mine. Uh, his name is Jake. Uh, he's a he's a he's a surgeon I used to work with in the military, and he did a consult with you. Oh, oh yeah, you know ultra run, ultra marathon. So I spent a night house. He's just one of the greatest guys. You know, it's a great family. But he was up there, you know, talking about doing his consults, uh, you know, with you getting his ultra running stuff. And he's he's actually doing a little bit of carnivore diet. He's trying to get some of his patients to do it. And uh, so it's been fun, you know. And it's been uh, kind of crazy. Well, like, uh, doing this consultation is going busy. I'm, I'm staying real busy with that. So this has been kind of very hectic lately. So I'm glad to be able to get the, get back on some of these podcasts because uh, that's just a lot of fun. So Anthony, um, give us a quick brief bio for people who don't know who you are and then we'll get into a bunch of stuff yeah i mean i'm a researcher at mayo clinic i have a phd in biochemistry from boston university medical school I hey, did let me on- let me let me just you keep going i got some at my front door they're here to, to check on my pool okay. <laughs> i'll be right back keep going, we'll keep, yeah yeah <laughs> cool um, well, the first, Zach, did you ever do Bert Kreischer? Uh, did you ever do a consult with him? I know on Joe Rogan, you said something about, uh, like yes. you basically told him, hey, I'll get you down, you know, to, to a certain amount of time on your marathon or to a certain weight or something like that. <laughs> yeah, so it was actually kind of funny. Um, it, so like Bert heard that episode and uh, reached out. Uh, I think mm. he reached out to me on like Instagram or something like that. And uh, we ended up, he actually was, maybe I think five or six weeks removed from coming to Tempe to do some standup. And uh, I live in Phoenix. So I'm like maybe a 15 minute drive from there. So right. uh, I asked him if he just wanted to meet up and chat. And he said, uh, let's do a podcast episode because he does a podcast as well. And so I went on that and we chatted about stuff, but Bert's kind of uh, easily distracted, I think by just <laughs> the next shiny thing and he got kind of into some triathlon stuff for a bit there so he's yeah, yeah. And, and also funny. in his defense i think his uh his stand-up stuff kind of blew up right right a, a yeah. fairly soon after that he ended up going on like a big bus tour and things i don't think he really had the the structure to really do stuff at that point but um I've got my fingers crossed that he'll get the itch and we'll get him in marathon shape down the road so <laughs> yeah yeah i saw him in california uh, last week or two weeks ago, I was out there on Dr. Drew's show. Oh, okay. Nice. And, uh, I went to the comedy store because uh-huh. I've never been there. And he w- he happened to be there. And Joe Rogan was there, of course. And I don't know, a lot of people, it was, it was like a who is who of comedy. But yeah. It I sounds was just like, curious. It sounds like that's the spot to check out if you're down that way on vacation. They all kind of frequent. <clears throat> right. 
yeah, it was it was a great place. Really fun conversations with all kinds of unique people. <laughs> uh-huh. And and they're typically just working on new content when they're there, right? So it's probably right. kind of cool to see them like working through stuff versus their completely polished finished product. But exactly. But I was <laughs> impressed. I thought it was pretty polished, you know. And they were saying, "Oh, it's going to be another year before my actual special or something." I'm like, "Man, that's it looks pretty tight." Uh huh. It is it's interesting me. to to look at kind of what those guys do and how they vary in their preparation for it. Cause I think a lot of people just think that they're just super funny people and they get up there and are just off the cuff for an hour. And it's like a lot more work put into it behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. You talking about stand up comics or something? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I purged a bit while you were gone. <laughs> yeah. you got I, took a, I took like a 90 degree turn after you left there. <laughs> Well, what the pool is the tile guys are they're, they're retiling the kitchen floor, so that's been so we've been mm-hmm. no kitchen for the last couple of days. So the good thing is I'm outside on the grill. So yeah, look at the hit. Yeah, check well. this. See this here. Yeah, I did that. Nice, oh, job, nice. Man. Yeah, I did that myself. Yeah, you got to kind of create. Makes you doesn't make you dizzy because it's kind of it's at a diagonal from the rest of the stuff, you know. Yeah, well, that makes the room look bigger. Does it? <laughs> Supposedly, according to my <laughs> wife. <laughs> So I got a picture of this dude with, you know, moobs or man boobs or, you know, <laughs> yes, I, you do. not quite got a capacity, but I know one of the things you, you sort of talk about is estrogen, you know, and oh, yeah. I, I've heard you talk about atrazine and, and some of these other, uh, other things. So let's, and, and we can talk about some of the genetic stuff or whatever you want to talk about, but let, let's, maybe let's start off with, with some of that stuff about, about if you want, like oh, yeah. estrogen in the, in the, in the, in the food supply and the environment, um, the effects it has on the body, you know, is it all hype? Is there any reality to that? What, what, let's just kind of touch on that topic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, atrazine is a great example because not a lot of people talk about it. You know, everybody talks about glyphosate, of course, because that's the number one used herbicide and gets a lot of press and a lot of negative press and a lot of debate back and forth. People saying it's perfectly fine. It's as good as drinking water, you know, and then of course, when you ask them to drink it, they won't touch it. But, you know, atrazine, people oftentimes have never heard of it, which is crazy because we use hundreds of millions of pounds every year in America. And in Europe, it's totally illegal, you know, so there's a huge discrepancy. And it's estrogenic. I mean, it acts like estrogen in your body. And that's kind of what I wrote my book about. I I compiled a top 10 list of these estrogen chemicals, uh, including atrazine, which are in our daily environment. Right? It's not like Agent Orange where you just, ex- hopefully you're never exposed to it, right? It, it messes up your hormones. Um, Agent Orange does. It can cause multi-generational impacts, but you're not going to be exposed to that, hopefully. Similar with a, a, a prescription drug they used to prescribe called diethylstilbestrol, it's DES. You know, they used to prescribe an estrogen-mimicking drug and it caused multi-generational problems. But the crazy thing is we're being exposed to a lot of these chemicals every day and it's sneaky you know we've we've never heard of these chemicals so i put this book together put this top 10 list together atrazine is one of them and just to give you some numbers right natural estrogen in our body is about 20 nanograms per mil uh, per per uh, liter sorry and that's in men 20 nanograms per liter Um, in women it's also about 20 which is shocking to most people, but it, it varies depending on the time of the month up to about 400, right? 20 to 400, something in there. Um, atrazine in our drinking water, the legal allowable limit is 3000 nanograms per liter. And if you put a frog in 200 nanograms per liter of atrazine water, 
the male frogs turn into females. Right? So that's obviously not something you want to be drinking at 3,000, even though it's allowed. I mean, the, the, the thing about frogs, they do absorb a lot through their skin. They're sitting in the water, you know, so it's a little bit of a apples and oranges, you could say. But still, it's not something you want to be drinking, you know, or eating on your corn chips. It's, it's sprayed on the grains, right? Is that something that would get removed from like a filtration process that you have or... So oh, yeah, all of them do. Yeah, all of them get removed with uh, activated charcoal, but they won't get removed by the municipal water supply because all they're doing is just putting in chlorine. They're putting in chemicals to kill living organisms. They do a great job with that, but they don't have micro filters where they're filtering out these little tiny hormones like birth control or atrazine or any of the other plastic chemicals that are leaching into our water, like the BPAs and the phthalates. Um, they, so you got to do that. You got to take the the burden is on you to remove those with activated charcoal, but it does get them. Yeah. So what I mean, rid of filter. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah I mean, there's a lot of different, you know, filters, you know, reverse osmosis water and ionic works, systems. And works. All yep. of those work basically, or is there, is there Correct. some that are, okay. <clears throat> yeah. yeah in fact, I put mine in myself. I did. I wonder if my wife, my wife's probably got the child lock on, so I can't even open my, <laughs> my, uh, I have these magnetic child lock things, so I have to get the magnet and all this, but underneath my sink right behind me, I've got a reverse osmosis that has a pump in it, which is awesome. So you don't need this big plastic storage tank. Um, the whole unit was 500 bucks and I've installed it myself. And it's got four different uh, stainless steel chambers. One of them is cotton just to remove big particles. The next one is activated carbon, activated charcoal. The next one is the reverse osmosis membrane. And then the final chamber is a remineralizer. So it puts back magnesium and stuff into it. And it tastes great. Have you thought it's my, about it's my favorite? It's my favorite, thought, but it's not necessary to go that far. <laughs> maybe you can make your own brand of water and just bottle it and just sell, sell it. <laughs> well, then you're then, then you're into the plastic bottles, you know. And I hate the plastic oh, bottles. That's right. You have to do the glass bottles or something. Glass jars. Hey, what? <laughs> yeah. Let me just because you know what has been. I mean, is there any demonstrable human data that shows that you know drinking water that's got you know atrazine in it or whatever these estrogenizing compounds? Can we show that that's having an effect or is it just hype? I mean, what's the, what's the, what's the actual data on that stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's hard in humans because we already have so many of these chemicals, right? So what's another thousand nanograms, you know what I mean? So we've all, when, they, when they did a study on breast cancer to try and figure out if, if uh, phthalates, which are you know, found in tons of plastics, whether phthalates are actually causing breast cancer, they couldn't find people without phthalates. And of course, phthalates are the ones you find in a lot of the drinking water bottles. Um, usually they're around 1,000 nanograms per liter in just room temperature bottles, you know, those cheap 24 packs of plastic bottles you find in the grocery store. Um, so they had to go up to basically Alaska to find a group of people like Northern Alaska that didn't have any phthalates. And then they tried to compare them against breast cancer. But the problem with that, of course, is to imagine how different their diets are and their lifestyles. And then you know, you can't really draw conclusions about the phthalates from that. So in reality, I think you have to go back to two things. Number one is the cell studies and actually look at whether it's triggering breast cancer cell growth, you know, and triggering the estrogen receptor and all this. And it absolutely does at those levels. And all these studies, you know, are not, not all of them, but a lot of them emphasize the fact that low dose phthalates or low dose atrazine or whatever trigger these health problems. It's not a massively high, you know, dose. Um, for example, there was a study they did on rats, and that's the other aspect. You can do these studies on animals, and absolutely, you do see these 
increases in certain types of health issues, including breast cancer, for example. They did a study with rats um, where they gave them low dose atrazine in their drinking water. And they had two groups. One of them was, you know, ex and by the way, both groups, exactly the same calories, exactly the same everything. The only difference, one group had low dose atrazine in the water and that group got fat. So, you know, even, even you personally being exposed to these chemicals can have some ramifications. It can take 10 years or something. Obviously rat lifespan is expedited. So it might only take a month for a rat or a couple months, but for humans that might take a year or two to really come out. But, um, the bigger problem is the multi-generational effect, of course, which is epigenetic, you know, because of the changes on the DNA. And that's even harder to quantify, right? And it's, it's a whole system of problems because the way we're doing our studies is so short-term. It's basically like, you know, we're looking at BPA, for example, back when it was discovered in the 1940s or even in the 1920s. But when they discovered BPA, they realized it acts like a birth control. And they were developing it as a birth control until they realized it actually congeals and forms into like this plastic like substance. And when they were doing those tests for birth control, what they do is they put a ton of it on the cells and they try and figure out how much does it take to kill the cells. So that's always been the toxicology model, right? Like let's add a ton of it. What dose kills the cells? And then we'll back off of that and we'll say, here's the allowable limit, right? And these estrogen chemicals, they all have something in common you can put a ton of them on cells before the cells die. That's something they all have in common. And that's something that's kind of tricked a lot of people over the years because, Oh, look, it's not toxic, right? Like the LD 50 is this or whatever the LC 50, you know, they all, all these doses are super high. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the, the shortcomings of all these toxicity studies is, you know, they're, they're looking for either, you know, it's going to kill you acutely or, you know, you know, so we don't know what the long-term chronic effects are on things. And, and most of it's, they're looking at DNA damage, looking at maybe potential cancer, right. don't, you know, is it, does it cause gut disruption? Does it cause, you know, depression? Those things we have no clue about. But hey, let me ask you, because you're talking about estrogenizing effects of different chemicals, atrazine, you know, phthalates, other, other compounds out there. And then there's people out there that talk, what's the difference between that and things like phytoestrogens, which, you know, that are found in, in things like soy and stuff like that. What, how do we, how do those things kind of, what's the difference between those? And, and are, do you have any concerns about phytoestrogens versus chemicals that estrogenize? Oh yeah, for sure. In fact, I've been invited on various uh, vegan or vegetarian podcasts and then they find out that I don't like soy and they'll actually un uninvite me <laughs> or, they, or they find out I eat meat or, or a combination of both. But for whatever reason, they've, I've been uninvited for to several of these. Um, and it, it's crazy because you don't have to, if you're a vegetarian, you don't have to like soy, but for some reason, it's just part of the culture. It's like, Oh, I get, you know, it's like part of the religion um, for some people, but yeah, these phytoestrogens are, they're acting like estrogen in your body too. I mean, that's why they specifically will prescribe them for postmenopausal women. Right. I mean, there's no denying that it, these, these plant estrogens act like estrogen. Um, and so then the question is, well, what do they do and how much do they act like estrogen and, you know, how much can you be exposed to? And they've done a big study in Canada with over 100 different plant foods. And all of the plants were under 1000 micrograms of phytoestrogen um, per 100 grams of the food. They were all one, under 1000 except soy and flax. Soy and flax were over 100,000. 
So it's like a totally different ballpark when you're talking about soy and flax and how much estrogen they have. Um, but the other question is when you start, you know, isolating and purifying compounds like resveratrol or something like that, and then taking those as supplements, well, then, then you start seeing estrogenic effects from those too, because you're just taking a purified condensed version of it. And similar with some of the uh, essential oils. Um, and then of course, cannabis, if you're smoking marijuana, not the edibles, but the actual smoke has also been no shown since 1983 to act like estrogen. And they've done follow-up studies on that. So yeah, a lot of plants have a lot of estrogenic potential. And the real debate is which estrogen receptor does it activate? Because there's two estrogen. When you have testosterone, there's only one receptor. It, it goes in your body and it binds the androgen receptor, right? That's it. But when you get testosterone in your body, there's two receptors. There's estrogen receptor alpha and estrogen receptor beta. So it has two choices when it's going, when estrogen is going through your blood, it can either bind alpha or beta, depending on which organ it bumps into or whatever. And some of these artificial estrogens, you know, they're more, they, they're more specific to binding alpha. Some are more specific to binding beta. It's similar with the phytoestrogen, the plant estrogen. You can go down this rabbit hole of like, you know, which ones are beneficial for breast cancer and which ones are harmful for breast cancer. And there's a lot of conflicting studies. And then when these chemicals get broken down into, you know, and get metabolized, even though metabolites, the breakdown products are also estrogenic. You can see how it kind of opens up this wide area of confusion, but I avoid them for sure. Yeah, I'm just wondering, you know, like particularly with soy, I mean, there's different sort of iterations on how they, you know, like, like in, in, you know, there's fermented soy and things like natto and things like mm. that. That yeah, that's not so bad. That's not so, so I'm bad. Wondering they, if, they, if that, that affects the estrogenic potential of those. Oh yeah, it, it does. And in fact, even so if, if it's actually fermented, which a lot of American products aren't, they cheat the system and they don't actually ferment the, the things. But if you do use microorganisms, the microorganisms do break down the isoflavones and the estrogens. Um, which is great. And that also indicates that our gut bacteria also are breaking a lot of these down. So the plant estrogens, you know, it, a lot of it does depend on how good your gut bacteria is. And you can't make the assumption that people have good gut bacteria these days because most people don't. Um, so that's always kind of a wild card, right? Like, oh, I'm okay with estrogen because I've got great gut bacteria. That's kind of a, a risky thing to say because we don't really have a good metric to say who, who has good gut bacteria and who doesn't. But it's a, it's a valid point for sure. Do we know like with, uh, with the water bottles, uh, cause I think, you know, once the whole BPA thing came out, everything was the, the clever marketing thing was, well, this bottle is BPA free. Exactly. And then I heard somewhere that like the alternative was just as bad as BPA. We just don't have a label for it yet or not. It's yep. not, I guess, like household common knowledge at this point. So like right. if someone goes and buys a plastic water bottle says BPA free. What are they looking at versus the BPA built water bottle? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think I've been the one to cry wolf on this one, except there's actually a wolf here um, to bring out that point because there were some studies back when they started shifting over to BPA free. There was a bunch of studies on the alternatives and they're at least as estrogenic, you know, which is hilarious because they're getting away from BPA and then they're putting in more estrogen. And oftentimes it's even more, um, so the alternatives are twofold. You can either use a plastic that has phthalates and phthalates are certainly estrogenic. Um, or you can just, and what a lot of companies do. So instead of using bisphenol A, right, BPA, they'll shift over and use bisphenol S, 
BPS. And that one is absolutely is estrogenic. That's the most common uh, backup plastic that they use. And you can still call it BPA free, but it's still a BPS, right? And then if you, if you suddenly made that one illegal, because 17 states have jumped in and made BPA illegal in children's products. The federal government hasn't done anything, but some of the states are finally getting in and saying, okay, if the feds aren't doing anything, we've got to make this illegal, at least in children's products. Cause I mean, the research is super clear. Um, but then the companies change to BPS. But then if you make the BPS illegal, they switch over to BPAF. You make BPAF illegal they make BPF. It's just like making steroids, right? Like chemists like myself can keep making subtle changes to the structure of the chemistry. And it still acts like estrogen, but at least we now have, we, we can say, we can say, Oh, it's BPA free. Right. Yeah. And we saw that same uh, strategy used with like supplement companies too, where they would make some tainted supplement that, you know, worked really well because there was a bunch of stuff in there that it wasn't necessarily labeled. And when they would get pinged, they'd have to take it out of market and just repackage it under a new name with the same stuff. And you just kind of keep playing that, that right. merry-go-round. Yeah. Regulatory merry-go-round. Hey, it, hey, Anthony, let me, let's talk about uh, estrogens in animal products because, you know, yeah. certainly oh, yeah. all animals, you know, make hormones. I mean, no, no matter we eat, we eat, whether we, you know, whether they're, whether they're implanted or not, if they're implanted, they're going to have a higher amount. Um, right. you, know, you know, they're going to have what they make naturally. And then there's, they, they do give, they do give, you know, I know they inject cows with testosterone or bulls with testosterone and they'll use estrogen and progesterone. And, and, and I think there's two others that they're commonly used in, in, in animal agriculture. What's the, what's the impact on that? And what's your concern with that? What's the dosage is like? What do those do with estrogen, estrogenizing? I've seen data where somebody said like uh, for you to eat, the, you know, to get the equivalent of the whatever number of, uh, uh, you know, nanograms that you naturally make, you'd have to eat something like 27 cows worth uh, a day to do that. Um, so what, what, and, and, and we know that milk and uh, organ meats and I think eggs accumulate these more and maybe cheese accumulates it more than regular meat. I don't, can you, do you, do you know, do you have that data? Yeah. Well, some of it. Yeah. Um, I'm not that worried about the natural estrogens that the animals make. I mean, for sure your stomach acid does pretty well with those. We're, we're adapted to deal with those. Yeah. Maybe you get a little tiny bit of a testosterone boost or something, but it's really barely quantifiable. <laughs> Um, what I am, I'm definitely worried more about the animals that are storing up these estrogens in their fat. Um, and it's even in some of the meat products. Um, so for example, atrazine, going back to atrazine, excuse me. Um, they did a study on these feedlot cows and, you know, it was done in a different country, but it's using our model, you know, the feedlot system. And of course, what they're doing is they're bringing in cows that are probably free range, you know, and then they're just loading them up with corn. And I think a lot of people have linked you on this study. When I, whenever I make a post on this, people are like, oh, what's Sean Baker going to think? And they all link your, your name on it. So you've probably, probably seen this with my posts over the years. But um, they found in the blood of the cows, uh, one, uh, I want to say 100, and it, I'm almost positive, but it was in this ballpark, 170,000 nanograms per liter of atrazine in their blood. So that's, I mean, just floating around in their blood. And that's, and then of course, when they pull out the fat, they find, you know, a pretty wide uh, array of different estrogens and doses. Like even in polar bears in Northern Alaska, they've done, they did a study autopsied 11 polar bears and every single one had parabens in their fat. And it was about around 50 nanograms, which isn't super high, but I mean, we're talking about polar bears in the middle of nowhere. 
um, it, because it's gotten into the food chain, these perfumes, these fragrances, people are washing down the sink. And of course, we're rubbing them on our skin too. And our skin absorbs these things. It actually prefers to stay on your skin instead of going down the drain. So that's another problem. But just going back to the animals, I mean, it's so wide. The, you know, the ranges are so variable and it's like, which, which estrogen are you talking about? And it can get complicated, but that 170,000 number makes me nervous about just, uh, you know, eating cows that are on these feedlots, you know, even again, aside from the natural hormones. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it, it, when you start going down the rabbit hole, you start to realize, uh Oh, <laughs> I have to yeah. do an overhaul, but, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, perfumes and stuff. And I remembered, uh, this was maybe a couple of years ago at this point, but I was listening to a podcast. I think it was Ben Greenfield was doing some like, uh, um, consulting with like NFL football teams and he'd go in there and he said, the first thing you do is go in the locker room. You just see just like just rows of different like colognes, deodorants and like soaps and things that are just loaded with some of these estrogens that you're talking about. And he said, yep. here you have these guys who are like, you know, going out of their way, like more or less to try to get as big and strong as they can. Um, and sometimes skirting the rules to do so. And then they're <laughs> missing this yep. like basic uh, kind of element of what could be useful in that situation and, and not yep. recognizing that. And he said, that's one of the first things he'll do is clear all that stuff out of there. Yeah. I heard him say that on Joe Rogan he, on his, the third time he was on Rogan, he mentioned my book and he was talking about that. Um, and I do the same thing. I, I'm, I was just uh, contacted by the uh, head of strength and conditioning from Texas tech, which mm -hmm. is uh apparently where Patrick Mahomes went to school and I guess he's doing a lot of recruiting for them and they're redesigning their facility and making a new facility and they want me to be a part of that. But yeah, that's the low hanging fruit, right? It's like, well, first, first of all, let's get rid of these sponsors that are loading people up with, you know, estrogens. I mean, women that are pregnant, if they're perfume users, they have 167% higher phthalates in their urine. And, you know, this stuff crosses, they've shown it crosses into the, you know, through the uterus and all this into the, uh, the fetus is picking these things up. Um, and what's crazy, Zach, and, and, and I know, you know, I know you probably have heard the term epigenetics and you probably have a good idea of what it is, but the craziest part is they, there's a guy named Michael Skinner who really pioneered this. He's a friend of mine. I've eaten lunch with him here at Mayo and I talked to him a little bit here and there over the years. And he's proven that you know, if you expose mice um, or other animals to these estrogen chemicals, you know, especially pregnant mothers, right? You give them one exposure. Of course, the mother is affected. You see fat gains. You see, uh, you know, like their fertility decreases over the years. You see really fast. You see, uh, I don't know, a bunch of different problems. Oftentimes in humans, you see depression. Um, but anyways, uh, of course, the mother is affected, the fetus is affected, and then you can argue that the fetus has its own stem cells for its reproductive organs already in place. So that's three generations just from that one exposure. The crazy thing is the fourth generation is also affected, which you can't explain by just purely being directly exposed, right? Um, so there's epigenetics in play. And since uh, Michael Skinner, Dr. Michael Skinner out in Washington kind of proved this. I mean, he grows 3,000 mice, you know, at any given time. If you go over there, three to 5,000 mice are growing in his lab. And he does these multi-generational, multi-year studies because it takes a long time. 
and he's proven fourth generation effects and it actually gets worse in four generations. It's not, it's not like, oh, the fertility drops and then it kind of just stays at a low level. It actually keeps dropping. It's like it drops and drops and drops, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of disheartening because you think about it. I mean, it's plastics, it's perfumes, it's probably stuff in the air we're breathing, it's in the water oh, yeah. supply, it's in the food supply. I mean, compounds from everywhere and there's a point where like what the heck can i reasonably do to avoid this right. stuff it's pretty challenging right. really and yeah I mean, what i well yeah 100 what I, what I did in my book is i made up three plans like here's the gold plan here's the silver plan and here's the bronze plan for people that are in college can't afford much get the basics right like certainly filter your water get this crap out of your personal care products you know if you're a pro athlete or you're an elite military guy i'm actually giving a talk for the special operations coming up um and, you know, if you're in that kind of situation, right, you're a green beret or whatever, do you want to go even more extreme probably, you know, and, and get the shower, change your shower curtains. Those things are probably leaching a lot into, they've done a study on a children's day, a bunch of children's daycares in California because they're, they've got like these plastic floor mats, they've got plastic toys everywhere, plastic slides, plastic this, plastic that. And they found uh, the phthalates just in the air, exactly like you're saying, and the benzophenones, which are like sunscreen chemicals to protect the plastics from being degraded by the sun, like the new car smell. Um, they found both those chemicals were exceeded cancer benchmarks just from the air quality. You know, they're and, the, and the cancer benchmarks are ridiculous. Like you need a lot of it to get into the cancer causing range. In my opinion, the nanogram ranges are a concern because that's where our natural estrogens, you know, the levels are and it starts to lower your testosterone and this kind of thing but you know they were talking about like hundreds of <laughs> hundreds of thousands of nanograms just in the air for these children so you're absolutely right in those cases you want to even watch out but get the big ones right like filter your water what does our body do i mean obviously i mean we have to have some capacity to detoxify you talked about gut gut microbiome and probably the, the you know we're eating the acidity in our stomach and We've got, you know, our liver obviously has is, is got a lot of different systems for detoxifying this stuff. I mean, is this something that's overwhelming our systems? Are we able to deal with it? I mean, you know, you can make the argument that we eat a lot of foods naturally that have compounds that we have to deal with and detoxify. And that's one of the you know, deals with around the carnivore diet is a lot of people are, you know, having dish issues with certain compounds in, in foods that are naturally occurring. So how do we, how does our body adapt to this stuff? And, you know, can we adapt to it? <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's a hard question too, because, well, there's people that have, I do DNA, you know, analysis and consulting for people. I look at their 23andMe and there's a gene called CYP1B1, which is a liver enzyme. Of course, you know, the CYP genes, the cytochrome P450, there's 2000 of them in humans. Um, but that particular one, CYP1B1 is especially involved in breaking down these xenoestrogens. And whenever people come to me and they've got a plus plus gene, like two bad versions of that gene, we have two copies of DNA, every cell in our body, you get one copy from each parent. Um, but when people come to me with a bad, with two bad versions, it's almost, at least, especially for men, it's almost hundred percent. They've got gynecomastia. They've got man boobs like that guy in the background. Um, and they oftentimes have had surgery and everything. You know, I was doing a podcast where I was doing a guy's DNA on the air and he had that gene and I was telling him that I was saying, look, a lot of people have trouble with man boobs with this gene. It's really imperative, you know, to optimize your testosterone and really avoid. And he's like, yeah, it's funny you say that because I've had surgery for gynecomastia. He said that right in the air, you know, it, was, it wasn't confidential. Um, 
and I wasn't trying to like point a finger. I was just saying, look, this, this gene is really common. You see estrogen issues. Why? Because so many people are exposed to these estrogens. You know, it's hard to get, get them out of your body. But so that's a good example of somebody who doesn't uh, clear estrogens very well. And then sure enough, you do see a lot of issues in those cases. And then for the normal people who don't have that gene issue, um, it, it varies pretty widely depending on how much they're exercising and, you know, what they're eating and how many of these things, how many years they've been exposed, how much their parents were exposed, right? Like how much their grandparents were probably exposed, all that stuff factors in and it's too complicated to really put a simple answer on it. So is there anything, cause you mentioned earlier, like activated charcoal. And I know like when I first heard of activated charcoal is around that same kind of idea of some of these, these estrogens and some of these unavoidable almost estrogens just that we're going to get from, living in modern society. So is like supplemental uh, activated charcoal, is that snake oil or is that something worth looking into similar to like a water filter? Yeah, I did a, I did a, a YouTube video on that topic. Um, it certainly binds estrogens like these hunting clothings, right? Like you've probably seen the camo that's got the activated carbon lining, like mm -hmm. scent lock or scent blocker. Um, I use them when I go hunting and they, they work. I mean, because a lot of these, scent molecules a lot of these uh, uh what's the term i'm trying to think of you know these attraction molecules or your skin secretes pheromones right pheromones, yeah. yeah a lot of these pheromones are actually they're derived from cholesterol right they're they're lipophilic they're they bind to activated charcoal so when you wear the activated charcoal they, they go out of your skin and boom they stick into that activated charcoal they're super effective um and that's as an aside, I know this isn't answering your question directly, but I'll get back to it. As an aside, a lot of these estrogen chemicals, like that new car smell, we're actually wired to be attracted to it. I think there's actually an attraction, like an, in a weird way, because it smells like estrogen and it attracts us. Um, and that's a perversion of what it should be, but it's just the way our bodies are wired. Because evolutionarily, we've never seen these chemicals. Um, but going back to the question about taking the pills, right? The activated carbon pills. I mean, I certainly don't recommend it because it, then you're absorbing a lot of vitamins that you mm -hmm. need and it's better to just avoid them. And, you know, those little bits of exposures you're getting from the air around your house and all that, hopefully it's not super high. I mean, I make an effort if I replace my carpet or something, I make an effort not to get plastic carpet. Like, like, uh, I get nylon, which doesn't have phthalates. I look into it. Nylon's real cheap and it doesn't have phthalates. If you want to go high end, you can get wool or something like that. But then it, anyways, I mean, there's strategies you can use, you know, as you live your life and as you replace products in your house. Um, but I don't think people should be taking activated charcoal pills all the time. Maybe once in a while it pro it does absorb things. I mean, but yeah. It's so risky. I guess if you were going to go that route, would it be best to do it? Say like, amidst a fast or something like that. So you're not trying to digest food and intake the minerals from that at the same time. Probably. Although even that, I don't think you need to, I think the best way to, to, to get rid of uh, estrogen chemicals is the sauna. They've mm. done studies. It's just like a nicotine patch without the nicotine. They've done studies where they put, they have people wearing these patches and some of them go in the sauna. Some of them don't. The people that go in the sauna, they sweat out all kinds of BPA, all kinds of phthalates, you know, all these, these estrogen chemicals it even increases your urine output when you're sitting in the sauna and that's because the the molecular motion is speeding up so the molecules are moving faster 
and they're able to get out of your fat cells because the average fat cell year, uh, lives a year and a half in your life. You know, they've done studies with people that are exposed to the atomic bomb and they look at, well, how long do these fat cells live, right? A year and a half. So if you've got these estrogen chemicals inside the fat cell, they're going to stay there a long time. Let's speed them up. Let's get them out, get in the sauna, you know, that then you're getting exposed the next day in your new car. You can go back to the sauna. It helps kind of keep the system in balance. Is that something unique to the sauna itself or is just being in hot weather or sweating a lot helpful too? Sweating is totally helpful too. It's, most people are just too lazy to, they're not you, Zach. <laughs> I was just going to say, I like knew I moved in for a reason. <laughs> yeah, they're not like out in Arizona sweating their ass off. Um, so yeah, that's the hard way to do it, right? Like to work up a sweat, which most people aren't willing to do, but that absolutely works, yeah. Hey, let's go into a little more about the DNA stuff because I think it's kind of it's kind of interesting stuff. So, what do you when you say you you do a lot of consulting around DNA? What kind of things are you trying to look at? I mean, because there's so much there you could potentially look at. What are you are you mostly concerned with these enzymes that process these estrogenic compounds, or do you kind of do you kind of tape do you kind of branch off into other areas? Yeah, well, we should do yours, Sean. I'm telling you, we should get your 23andMe done and just make up an alias, and so nobody gets your data. <laughs> Go through Proton Mail over in Switzerland, you know. I mean, well, I mean, why, why, what do you, what do you suspect is going? I, I mean, my well, dad. I'm curious, my, about, I'm curious about yours because you do so well on the carnivore diet, and um, I want to see some genes that I'm kind of. I mean, my dad did it, and I all I remember him telling me is he was, you know, very high in, in Neanderthal gene, which you know, yeah, there's obviously yeah. some of that going. I'm probably, I mean, most people call, <laughs> accuse me of being a Neanderthal anyway, but uh, no, no, that's the that's. A lot of people get all hyped up about it, like, oh, look at my ancestry, right? Like, I'm this much percentage of this and this much percentage of that, but I don't, I couldn't care less about that. And a lot of, most people I think are on my side. What really, the power of understanding your DNA is looking at these health related SNPs, right? The genetic differences that relate to health. So what I, I actually started way, way back, um, I, st I, I started my consulting company, AJ Consulting, uh, by making virus for the government. I used to design virus. So what do you do is you would make, you would design a DNA and then you put it in human cells in a dish. And then the human cells actually would make virus. And then I would spin down the virus and do it and use them for research. So we were looking at Alzheimer's disease and actually injecting virus into mouse brains and things to see how you can manipulate the genes with the virus. You can, you can knock down genes with viruses and things. So we're looking to try and do some healthy things with viruses or potentially healthy in terms of treating difficult diseases, just at a research level, just with animals. But then it kind of morphed into me looking at DNA for health optimization. And the early parts I used, or the early years, I used to just look at detox, right? And how your body clears all these different chemicals. But now I kind of expanded into like, what are you, what's your brain, you know, like optimizing DNA for your brain. So for example, right? Like some people have that ApoE gene and DHA is like a super important nutrient for them to get for their brain to prevent Alzheimer's. Some people have a gene issue called transferrin. The gene is TF, <clears throat> excuse me, letters T and letter F. And for those people, if they've got a bad version of that transferrin gene, they don't clear heavy metals very well from their brain. So then for them, it's really imperative to avoid heavy metals and may probably even get your hair checked or get heavy metals checked in your body to make sure you're not storing them up. Um, some people have a gene called sirtuin, S-I-R-T-1, especially. Um, and that's the one that's activated by resveratrol. The problem with resveratrol, it's estrogenic, but you can activate that sirtuin. If you've got a crappy version of the sirtuin gene, your lifespan is usually shorter. 
but you can change that by, you know, taking a supplement that will turn on the sirtuin gene. Even ketones will do that. Um, but like you can use certain approaches to optimize if you've got a crappy sirtuin gene, right? So what you do, the, so that's just talking about brain. I'm not even, you know, I do brain, I do detox, I do diet, I do training and I do sleep. Those are the five categories I look at for people. And in all of these categories, I'm just looking at, okay, where are your weak spots and how can we fix them? And, you know, and there's no reason to be loading up on DHA if you don't have a genetic issue that says, hey, you should load up on DHA, right? You don't need to be spending that money and wasting that time. But if you did have the genetic issues, then it's super worth it because it does prevent things from happening. This episode of HPO is brought to you by BioOptimizers. They have identified over 130 research studies showing this to be a powerful way to upgrade your keto digestion, energy, and fat loss goals. Some keto pitfalls include constipation, lack of energy for peak exercise, and fat loss plateaus. BioOptimizers offers a possible solution called K-Apex. What K-Apex does is three things. First, breaks down the fats you eat into fatty acids using a proprietary lipase and dandelion extract blend. This means you're breaking down the dietary fat into usable energy. Second, they transport those fatty acids into the muscles and in the liver, and they have several ingredients that dramatically increase the fatty acid oxidation inside your mitochondria, both in your muscle and liver. Simply put, you're transporting fuel into your motor and you're increasing your motor's horsepower. They recommend three to five capsules of K-Apex in the morning on an empty stomach for energy similar to a cup of coffee that can last six to 10 hours without the nervous system stimulation. Smooth bowel movements and fat loss when coupled with a calorie deficit can be expected. It's not magic, but some research behind shows that it does help raise metabolic rate and other fat loss hormones. Try it for yourself when you go to www.kenergize.com forward slash human that's k-e-n-e-r-g-i-z-e dot com forward slash human all one word you'll automatically get 20 percent off any package of k-apex with coupon code human kx all one word now back to the show Yeah, one one of these days I'll get motivated to, to test some of that stuff right now. <laughs> what what'd you say? I said one of these days maybe I'll get motivated to do, do some of those tests, you know. Well, especially for you because like I said, you do so well with carnivore. It'd be interesting from me, from my perspective with my yeah. experience just to say, hmm, I wonder how this gene is working out in his metabolism or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that might be some interesting stuff. Hey, talk to me a little bit because you did a little bit of a carnivore experiment looking at telomer length or you started that. And I actually had a gal, I did a... I did like a podcast or a live event in Connecticut, like, and one of the, one of the participants of your, of your study was actually there. And, you know, nice. she got her telomere stuff done and said, you know, it, it showed that she got younger based on telomere age. You know, she like dropped like 15 years of age, but did you get any data on that? And then let's go into telomeres. Cause there's a lot of people out there saying, well, they don't really matter anyway, but what are your thoughts around yeah. telomeres? I think telomeres are awesome, but the, the, the reason people debate it and argue about it is because there's quite a bit of variation, right? Like if you go in on Monday and you get your telomeres checked and then you go on Wednesday, you get them checked, there's variation. And I literally have three telomere test kits right here. You know, I'm going to do all three at the same time and just see how much variation there is on the same day at the same time, because every test has a little, well, 
almost every test in, in labs, right, in clinical studies, they've got some amount of variation. And that's perfectly acceptable. That's not a problem. But you need to know that. It's called noise, right? I mean, there's going to be a little bit of noise. So it, it may be plus or minus five years, right? So you can only trust it within a certain plus or minus window. And most people, they don't, they don't acknowledge that. They don't, they don't realize that's true of pretty much everything. And so, you know, because we're used to seeing blood glucose or something, and that's such a repeatable, accurate test, and they've honed that one so well over the years. But for the most part, most of these cutting edge tests, there is quite a bit of plus minus, but it doesn't mean you throw out the whole test and say it's completely worthless, which a lot of people do with the telomere test. Um, but the, the reason I'm interested, in, I'm interested in all the blood work, but also telomeres because telomeres lengthen when you eat red meat, but it's got to be whole red meat. The people that are eating processed meat oftentimes find shorter telomeres and that's published, right? But of course it's mixed up. It's all messy because they're eating all kinds of other stuff on the side as well. And they don't really control well for that. So what I tried to do with my study was just to find people that were um, doing the carnivore diet anyways. It's like, well, if you're going to do it anyways, let's just, you know, if you're willing to take, you know, send me the blood work and take the telomere test. And some people did. Um, most people dropped out. I had 10 people and almost all of them dropped out, which is super unfortunate. So I may or may not write up a case report or two, you know, or I'll probably combine them. But yeah, it's tough. And I think, I think that's one of the hardest parts about the carnivore diet is finding people that it takes a certain kind of person to be that um, disciplined. And that's true of every diet, right? But especially with the carnivore diet, and especially getting over that initial hump, I think, when when somebody doesn't have substantial issues like if you don't have jordan peterson's immune system issues or whatever or depression then it's hard to motivate yourself to stick with it um at least from the people that were in my study right which were just average people yeah i mean well i mean you know it may have been because when we did we did something uh two years ago and we got about 100 people to do it for three months and you know but we said you know i think we were like I think we we're fairly, I mean, we, we didn't, we, we said no coffee, you know, just meat and water only. I think we allowed eggs and stuff like that, but it was, it was still pretty, pretty tight. And we had, you know, a hundred or so that, that, that stayed for three months and the results tend to be pretty positive for, for the most part. But right. uh, it'd be interesting, you know, to see if, uh, you know, I mean, I think the case reports are valuable. I know I've talked with uh, people from us, uh, sorry, the NCBA, the National Academy's Beef Association about, you know, getting more research done. And, and from their perspective, they said they'd like to see case reports in the literature, right? You know, if they're going to, if they're going to be willing to, to sort of help fund some further intervention, exactly. studies, which I think are, yeah. which I, so I think that's the way we have to have to kind of do it. So, but the, of, yeah. of the few that remained, uh, I guess, I don't know what the results were. I don't know if you want to share that or not. Oh well, yeah. I haven't even picked through it to be honest. I still have to sit down. Um, because it's, yeah, I mean, mostly because I'm super busy, but, but it's also because it, it takes a lot because these people send me so many emails and so much blood work and everybody's sending me different things. And I kind of have them organized in a folder, but I really have to sit down and go through it. And then there's a lot of people that came on board pretty late. Um, so they're still kind of trickling in and I don't want to prematurely jump into it. And it's one of those things I want to dive in and, and did not have to jump back out and then dive back in some other time, do it all at once. But I agree like the, the case studies are super important, even from my perspective, because 
even if you get an NIH grant or something like that, like get funding to do a bigger study, more le like more legitimate, where we can actually pay people and not just have a crowdsourced study. I mean, yeah, we need those case reports um, just to get that going. Yeah, I think I think that's what we're going to see over the next uh, you know year or two is going to be more and more of that coming in, and then hopefully we'll yeah. see the bigger stuff happen. Well, did I tell you about the complaint I got too at the Mayo Clinic? <laughs> no, no, you didn't say anything. Yeah, so so some vegan um, identified themselves, somebody identifying themselves as a vegan complained about the ethics of my study <laughs> to the Mayo <laughs> Clinic administration. So they, they, I got a call from, well, I got an awkward email saying like, please call us. It was like from the administration at Mayo. So I called him and he's like, look, we got a formal complaint against you. Um, somebody identified as a vegan and they don't like the ethics of this carnivore diet study you're proposing. Now we want you to know you're, you're not in trouble. You didn't do anything wrong. According to our guidelines, we just have to, we have to inform you that there was a complaint. That's part of our policy. So I've been informed that somebody complained officially. Somebody went all, all the way out of their way to go to the Mayo administration as high up as they could and um, try and basically shut me down or shut the study down or something, or just basically, put me on the radar as you know well it sounds like someone who's super interested in finding out answers exactly <laughs> <laughs> it's frustrating it's a frustrating thing and that's that's something i feel like you're going to bump into with the carnivore diet and that's one of the reasons i want to be a part of studying it because there's definitely a group of people that i think it's going to be really beneficial for we just have to figure out what what is that group of people where that super strict carnivore diet is absolutely awesome um, and, and, you know, it's like, if you can't study it, the problem is, is all these vegans have kind of got the government policies and life insurance and all this, like, oh, if you're a vegan or if you're a vegetarian, you know, your life insurance is going to be cheaper because it's so healthy, right? That's kind of the assumption from all the lobbying and all these groups that they've had for such a long time. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, no doubt they've done they've been successful in, in, in advancing their their agenda and they've got people in places that are of influence right now. I mean, you know, as my book was, you know, as my book is coming out a few months back, they had vegans had my publisher pull it for a couple of days because they were they were making some ridiculous claims about me that weren't <laughs> were true. Wow. And they, they actually took it off off the off the sales the pre sales for for a couple of days. And we, we had to wow. go back and say, hey, this is this is silly, but it was vegan. So they. Yeah, I mean, they're out there complaining. They, they are obviously don't care about science. All they care about is, you know, what they believe ethically. And, you know, we don't need to answer questions. We don't need to help uh, try to help people solve their health problems. Because, you know, clearly what we've seen and I've demonstrated time and time again with patient person after person after person seeing that they, they are resolving health issues with okay. a more meat-based diet or even in some cases a completely meat-based diet. And so we do have, in my mind, it's an open question. There's other people out there that are saying that, very unscientifically that the science is settled, which is the most unscientific statement you can possibly make about science in my view. But I mean, we have people out there that truly uh, believe that we know everything and we don't need it. We don't need to further uh, answer these questions or the questions have been answered never to be, never to be asked again and that sort of thing. And that's, that's in my view, very yeah. dangerous. But uh, anyway, um, what, uh, what do you have, uh, you know, in the works right now, Anthony, what, what's going on with you as far as uh, any upcoming uh, stuff that we need to talk about? Oh man, it's a lot of stuff. It's hard because every day I'm doing so many DNA consults and then I, I work at the Mayo Clinic full time. So it's, I'm doing some research with infrared lights and stem cells and, and asthma. I'm actually got funding. 
so I got some interesting stuff where I was, I was taking uh, stem cells out of human patients out of the fat cells. So adipose derived mesenchymal stem cells and shining infrared on them and found some interesting stuff that relates to lungs, like the FGF7 gene uh, increased with infrared. Certain, I saw some interesting stuff with RNA sequencing. Um, so I managed to leverage that into funding for studying lung cells because it seemed like it was really relevant based on the data I was getting. So now I'm doing some stuff with infrared on asthmatic. So at Mayo Clinic, it's kind of like my own little world there of what I'm doing in epigenetics and infrared and um, some interesting stuff with stem cells. And then, you know, certainly I'm with my DNA consulting and I'm trying to write more books on that and epigenetics and DNA. <clears throat> I, I'd be interesting a little bit, you know, cause uh, there's a company there called Juve and actually the guys are coming on yep. the show yep. uh, and they've got this infrared and red light infrared. It's like 650, 850 nanometer, you know, wavelength range. Yep. And there's some, you know, there's, there's actually quite a bit of research out there that called photobiomodulation. And there's a couple yep. of thousand studies, I believe have been done on that stuff. But, my question becomes, you know, I think, you know, you could probably take any compound and show an effect. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, 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 you know, the question becomes, is it a good effect? Is, is, are there bad effects? Is, is a net effect of this a good thing? And I think that's where a lot of times, because we, 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 we hone in on these little detailed, you know, single bio, biochemical processes. And, you know, it's like, okay, that's interesting. And, and it may have applications for certain situations, but what is the overall effect to say, right. is this a good thing in general or is it, or are there, are there just as many bad effects as good effects? And so do you have any, oh, do yeah. you have any kind of way to kind of navigate that as far as, you know, for, let's just use infrared for, for, for instance. Yeah. Well, what I'm doing with the asthma cells, the, I'm taking them from human lungs, you know, people that are normal, people that are asthmatic. Um, I look at ER stress as like a, an indicator of so endoplasmic reticulum stress and how as an, as a potential indicator that there might be problems, but, um, I'm also interested in, you know, people's genetics. So like, say for example, the most people that I see that really benefit from infrared are people that have nitric oxide synthase genetic issues. And uh, because infrared releases nitric oxide from your cytochrome C, um, oxidase, cytochrome C oxidase in your mitochondria. So you're actually releasing a nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator. So there's potential benefits on your blood vessels. And like you said, I mean, you can get that in a lot of different ways. You can get nitric oxide increase from exercise, but you know, if you have a specific gene issue, it's a lot, you know, in the evening, it can be really beneficial. Just put that infrared right on your joints and get nitric oxide released directly into your joints and get more blood flow in there, for example. Um, there's a gene called ITGAV that's involved in angiogenesis and you know, it's a real high risk factor for uh, rheumatoid arthritis if you have that gene and it's because of blood flow, it goes back to blood flow. So there's certain contexts where it's really a valuable tool. It's not everything, right? I mean, you obviously want to eat healthy to begin with so you don't have a lot of inflammation and all this, but these are just levers and tools that I'm using to pull certain pathways. Um, for people that already kind of have a weak spot, I think. I mean, that's my goal. Alzheimer's is another one, right? Because infrared increases BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And by the way, the, the scientist I work next door to, he's like one of the world's, he's probably the world-leading guy on BDNF in the lungs. Previously, it wasn't even known that we have brain-derived neurotrophic factor in our lungs, but we do. Um, and BDNF, we, we, and scientists, we call it miracle growth for the brain. 
oftentimes because it, if you have brain cells growing in a dish and you put some of this BDNF protein, this peptide in there, they like explode like these miracle grow commercials. It's like new shoots and leaves and branches. I mean, these, these neurons just explode. So obviously in certain situations, that's a really beneficial thing. It's protective against Alzheimer's and they've proven that in a million animal studies with using infrared on mice and that are uh, at risk for Alzheimer's, these mouse models and it spikes their BDNF and you find a lot less Alzheimer's. And so for people that have BDNF, going back to the, you know, the brain genes, I'm looking at the BDNF gene and people, there's a lot of people that have a problem with their BDNF gene. And so in that case, put that infrared right on, put that juve right on your head. You know, it goes three inches through your skull. They've done cadaver studies on humans. Um, and I actually use the Juve light. So when I was in LA last week, I was at the headquarters for Juve, just talking to the guys. I don't make any money from them. It's just purely because they do a lot of validation on their product. And, you know, I, I, it's hard to find a good infrared that actually is well validated. <clears throat> you, yeah, can't, you, can't, you can't see the infrared, right? So you could easily have somebody just sell you a box that you just flip a lever on and you think you're doing something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Wes and his brother, uh, Greg, I, they live right down, not far from me. They're like the next town over. So I actually, oh, yeah. they're, they're actually pretty good guys. And, uh, you know, again, but I, I, I'm, I'm always as crazy as I am with, with, with diet, you know, I, I'm actually pretty much of a skeptic about a lot of things. And so I, I kind of like to say, you know, let, let me just show me the money. I want to see some, you know, some decent objective results, you know, oh, yeah. and again, yeah. I, I always point to this, I can put any compound on any cell and show an effect, you know? And, and well, in the mice, right? Like, let me just give you one mouse study, which was cool. So they had these, the, I kind of alluded to it, but I didn't go into it. They had a study with big groups of mice um, that, again, they're, they're Alzheimer's model mice, which isn't the greatest model for Alzheimer's, but it is what it is. We'll just pretend it is for the sake of argument. So it, the mice, as they grow out, they get tons of plaques in their brain, amyloid plaques, tau plaques, and they get Alzheimer's. So, and you can, what you do to measure that, of course, is you just kill the mouse, cut up the brain slices and quantify how much plaque they have. Um, I used to do this. I used to do, go to the morgue and do human brain cuttings every Thursday when I used to work on Alzheimer's. So, you know, it's not that hard to quantify this. Uh, what they had is three groups of mice. Uh, one of them got nothing. It's just a normal group, no exposure to infrared. The next group just had exposure in infrared for a certain amount of time, 20 minutes a day or five minutes a day or whatever. And the third group also had exposure to infrared for five minutes a day, same amount of time, but they had tin foil wrapped around their heads. They actually literally covered their whole head with tin foil. That way the infrared was not going into their skull. It was just their body. And so they wanted to see, well, how much of an effect, a systemic effect from the blood, from the changes in the blood markers, does that get in through the blood brain barrier and alter the uh, Alzheimer's? And sure enough, like the group that didn't have any infrared, I mean, they all get Alzheimer's. The next group that had whole body infrared, way less Alzheimer's. Um, and the group with the tinfoil, still less Alzheimer's, but not, not like completely ablated like it was with the ones that shine on the skull. So there's that, a time and place, you know. That's uh, that's kind of funny because you know you hear about people in their tinfoil hats trying exactly. to protect themselves. Well, so yeah. I guess it maybe does work a little bit, you know. <laughs> hey, um, I was just wondering, um, you know, about uh, oh, what the heck was I going to ask about? You know, the tinfoil stuff. <laughs> <laughs> EMFs or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's people. I mean, do you, I don't know if you you even make concern about. I mean, there's people that are really concerned about this 5G stuff rolling out. Is that something that that, that alarms you as well? 
I'm not sure. I don't I haven't looked into it deep yeah, enough. That's one of those rabbit holes. You really have to, yeah. you can't like, you can't skim the surface on those studies. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know. Maybe we ought to be wearing, walking around with tinfoil on our head. Maybe, maybe, maybe like we're, we're, uh, we're, we're crazy, but we probably already are. But, uh, um, what is, uh, you know, I mean, just, just, I mean, cause you, you, I mean, what is your, I mean, your role at the Mayo Clinic, like obviously you're doing research. How, how much do you get like, in that into the actual clinical application are there are there people in there that are that are using some of your stuff up there or are you still kind of the guy in a lab that kind of is just doing crazy stuff and <laughs> you know you don't it doesn't yeah, really yeah. application i mean the whole the the idea is definitely to get it to translation right um and i mean i'm a biochemist so i'm pretty far removed from that perspective like as a professional biochemist usually i am the levers and pulleys inside the cell guy like i am just looking at cells and dishes and you know, like these pathways, because just basically untangling all these pathways and understanding them is really an important step to moving on to animals and then to moving on to humans. But I try and stay away from the animal. I mean, I do it like I'm, I'm actually doing a rabbit or a, a rat. We're killing a rat today to look at this heart and <clears throat> I'm developing some stuff with the heart there in collaboration with somebody. But usually I try and stay away from animals and even more so with humans in the, in the clinical stuff, because it's just so time consuming, especially animals. You're coming in on weekends. You're, you know, you're not as flexible. Um, so, you know, pros and cons, I would love to be like the translation guy to take these, you know, to take these compounds or whatever into the, into the, you know, human trials. But for me, I'm not a big fan of the whole model as it stands where we're looking for symptoms and we're trying to use drugs to basically suppress the symptoms. And that's what most labs are doing. The most labs are looking for compounds that they can patent. Right. And honestly, I'm not really in, I'm not, that doesn't do it for me. That doesn't really get me, get me up in the morning. I'm a lot more interested in preventing things and, and understanding the mechanism, understanding the pathways. Yeah, I mean, I've read, I can't, countless, not countless, but I've read several articles, uh, you know, one was like, you know, they saw some this tremendous improvement in health by feeding these animals, basically like a ketogenic style athlete in, in, in a, sorry, a ketogenic style diet. And the sort of the, the take home message of it was, well, we would hate to subject any people to that. So we need to develop <laughs> a drug that will mimic that effect. I mean, right. this is sort of the, right. you know, the mentality that's out there is everybody's looking for the the next, uh, you know, the next, you know, big billion dollar drug, the next statin or the next whatever, right. so they can make money. And that's, that's really what drives a lot of this research. And my understanding is, um, it's not that, 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 you know, maybe, you know, if you want to do that type of review, you're, you're more likely to get funded. And that's, so that's where, oh yeah, oh yeah, so yeah not for sure. Work, you're not going to get funded. And so it's, it's kind of a, you know, you, we see a huge, uh, you know, uh, business is driving the research rather than pure interest in science, I think. Oh yeah. I mean, they've got professional guys that just go around to these science conferences and they look at people's posters and try and find the data that's not even published and with these drug companies. And then they try and spin that off into drugs that aren't patented yet. It's always a weird situation when you really understand how the system works, especially in America. You know, this guy, Michael Skinner, I mentioned before, the 3000 mice studies transgenerational impacts of estrogens. He gave a talk in Europe uh, regarding a, a fungicide and how it alters multi-generations. Gave one talk over there and he said there were some guys in the crowd with some suits on in the back and all this. And literally one week later, they made that fungicide illegal. 
and this was like six years ago or something and it's still legal in america we're still still using it it's clearly problematic it's a big problem but in america we have so much political influence you know so much money influencing our politics that it's absurd because government-funded research should be really open-ended it should be just really flexible it shouldn't be about patenting drugs but you know, the institutions get a lot of benefit if they patent drugs because they can actually keep the patents. The scientists don't get the patents. The institution does. You sign paperwork when you go to work for every place, every institution, like Mayo Clinic, even academic institutions, universities. You sign paperwork that says, if I invent something, the institution gets it. You know, so they're making a ton of royalties. So there, there's pressure from all kinds of different directions. Um which shouldn't be there, but it's just the way our system is set up. And I, I have a whole chapter in my book about this because obviously I'm kind of an insider on this and I don't agree with a lot of it. Um, and I, you know, I thought the editors were gonna pull that chapter out. Like, yeah, this isn't really about estrogen, this is about politics. <laughs> but they actually thought, almost all my editors said it was like their favorite chapter because it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, like, like the peer reviewed research is a good example. You, you actually, when you submit a paper and Sean, you might know this, but when you submit a paper, most of the time, 90% of the time you tell the, the journal, which reviewers you want to re read your paper, you know, so you actually select your own peer reviewers. So obviously that's open to a lot of political. So, so the important thing as a scientist, you have to know people and have a lot of friends that kind of are like-minded and then you can pretty much get papers published like this. And you know, like, it obviously can lead to a lot of bias and a lot of shenanigans in terms of publishing what you want. That's one of the reasons soy is such a messy field because people are publishing skewed research and they're putting this weird spin on it, but it's able to get published in peer reviewed journals because their peer reviewers are all buddies of theirs and they all think alike. And on the opposite side of that too, then I suppose if you came up or you dug into something that is kind of new and cutting edge, but counter to the current message, you're just not going to have a lot of friends in the field. <laughs> and then oh, yeah. it's going to yeah. be hard. To yeah, because it steps, it steps on their feet in terms of what they've been claiming for all these years and the funding sources. Yeah, it gets really politicized and really cutthroat. Yeah. Yeah, it's, even it's, even the grants, right? Like when you write a grant, it's not, it's not anonymous. It's crazy. Like they see your name when they're reviewing these grants. So like whether or not you get funded does, it does depend on who you, what's your name, you know, like what have you published in the past? Like these guys know, you know, these are small circles of researchers that study certain things. Um, it's one of the reasons the LDL field is such a mess. You know, I did my PhD on cholesterol and, and oxidized LDL and all this. It's a total cluster, you know, it's, it's a total mess because you know, like a lot of these guys have been buddies and they're all scratching each other's back and they're all absorbed into this weird idea that LDL is causing plaques and in every situation and um, it, it, it's a mess. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's delve into that a little bit because I think that is, I mean, it's just such an important topic and, you know, I just, I just, in fact, in my social media went back and forth, you know, I pull, I pub, I, I put out uh you know, one of, one of, was it Ufe Ravnikov? I'm not sure how you say his name. And, you know, David Diamond and all these other guys that put out this, you know, uh, meta or review paper, systemic review paper last year and said LDL is not the cause of, you know, of cardiovascular disease. And, and a lot of people, and most people don't, don't, most of the people in that field disagree. There's a lot of pushback on that. But at the same time, you're saying the field is so sort of, you know, it's all this nepotism and all this, yep. you know, sort yep. of scratch, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your stuff. So what, what, what can you say about, I mean, just the, the, what we can trust in that, in that sort of field. 
I mean, it's almost impossible because <clears throat> when they do these human studies, they're basically doing this selection bias where they're finding super unhealthy people that are eating shit. And then they've got super healthy people that are obsessed with their health. And of course, people eating shit have higher LDL. <laughs> I mean, and so it is, you know, it does go up if you're eating shit, but it also can go up in certain healthy situations too. And, you know, it's, it's a big problem. Uh, Marsha Angel, she used to be the editor in chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. She also graduated from Boston University Med School where I was. Um, she, <clears throat> 20 years, I think she was the chief editor for New England and she stepped down because she said there was so much, uh, you know, back scratching and nepotism, all this stuff that you just mentioned, it was a good way to put it. Uh, like literally she felt like it was, it was ethically necessary for her to step down as a chief editor because of this stuff. And I mean, that should tell us, you know, everything about what a mess it is and how problematic. And as soon as it's, it's just like vaccines, as soon as you start saying, yeah, I'm not a big LDL, you know, it, you get the whole like crazy, you know, religion, community out there, the statin religion, and they start going after you. So it's almost something you can't even write. I mean, I've, I've kind of started a book on this topic called blubber brain because, um, you know, I'm convinced there's a lot of benefits to LDL in terms of your brain. I mean, it goes up as you age, I think because it's neuroprotective cholesterol is a huge component in your brain. I mean, there's a lot of arguments, but the problem is when you have so there's certain gene mutations you can get familial hypercholesterolemia, as you know. And what that is, is, you know, your cholesterol is like obscenely high. And then when it's obscenely high, it actually, you get tons of plaques in these like kids, right? 20 year old, you got a pl plaques everywhere. The problem with that, and then they use that to extrapolate and say, oh, look, LDL causes plaques. The problem with that is when you have LDL that's that high, it becomes oxidized. It sits in your blood for so long, it reacts with oxygen. And the LDL itself, the, the cholesterol itself can become uh, oxidative. It can, be, it can become reactive, inflammatory. It can cause plaque. But when you're low, or even if you're quote unquote high, like in these medical ranges that they've redesigned to make sure everybody is, is high you know, on, on the LDL, those ranges, you're not going to get oxidized cholesterol if you're exercising. And, you know, so it's like a totally different discussion, but they use those people with that genetic mutation, the familial hypercholesterolemia group, and they try and extrapolate down to everybody so that basically they can prescribe more statins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of disheartening to see that stuff, but, uh, yeah, I mean, what I mean, that's that's a, that's the interesting thing because what do you what do you find is oxidizing cholesterol? You know, in a normal person that you know, like I mean, I, you know, I would certainly agree with you that I think we're looking at two different cohorts, and you know, the majority of the people that have high cholesterol are probably people that are eating a crappy diet and they're not healthy in general, and so you've just automatically self-selected that. Why does cholesterol go up? You know, in, in an unhealthy person. Well, it's because it's protective. So if you're eating a bunch of garbage that's causing inflammation, um, then you're actually injuring your blood vessels and you need cholesterol to come in and fix those sites of injury. So your body increases the amount of it. So it's available. So it's there to patch up these injury sites. Um, and again, if you're eating a bunch of garbage, like these McDonald's French fries or whatever, you have all these oxidized oils to begin with. So you're actually starting with oxidized products. You're starting with fats that have oxidation. You know, when people think of LDL, they think that's cholesterol, right? But obviously it's not. It's, it's, it's a ball 
that's floating around in your bloodstream because fats float on water. So your blood is like water. It can't just go throughout your bloodstream. It has to ride on these protein balls, these lipoproteins, LDL, VLDL, HDL, all this kind of stuff, IDL. Um, so to get around your bloodstream, it has to ride these things, these balls, but those balls aren't just pure cholesterol, obviously. They're actually phospholipids. They're like little cells. They have membranes. They have all kinds of different fats in them. And obviously, like I said, if you're eating McDonald's or something with oxidized fatty acids, those are going to be in those balls and those are also going to be reactive. So your body is trying to fix sites of injuries, but it's got all these oxidized fats in the little balls to begin with. And those are actually causing more injuries. So your body starts to upregulate to try and, you know, fix the injuries. I think it's hard to piece that all out in an actual living human, but you know, again, it's such a religion. It also makes it hard because you have to find the studies that are biased and that are just making outrageous claims about cholesterol causing plaques. And it's almost become so established that it's a mess, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, and, and there's now, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost scary because there's now, uh, you know, pushes to like, I mean, some of these big social media groups, which a lot of us are utilizing to sort of kind of go outside of the main sort of scientific inquiries. And there are people out there that are, that are wanting to think about this and answer these questions. And now there's things like Facebook are adopting, you know, they're going to, they're hiring uh, mainstream scientists to, to moderate, to, to delete stuff mm. or to, to, drive down the interest in people talking outside the mainstream dogma so it's almost as like you know you how dare you question the authority and we're not even gonna let you have a voice so it's kind of a just crazy crazy yeah especially as a, a medical doctor you're like yourself or a professional researcher like myself i mean when guys like us are getting silenced then you know it's a real problem you know it's the the censorship has gone way too far <clears throat> yeah, I don't know if, if we'll all, we'll have to go on the dark web or I, you know, <laughs> you know, have these kind of crazy uh, crazy meetups where we have to hide hide out to eat meat and talk about uh, <laughs> you, know, the, you know the craziness of not taking drugs. I mean, yeah, it's like we've got this, uh, you know, it's almost as if we've kind of sort of said, well, you know, everybody's suffering from some drug deficiency and that's why people are sick, and so this is because they don't have enough pharmaceuticals around the <laughs> deficiency there. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I like the paleo diet because it frames things well. If you think about it, you always have to think in that ancestral frame. I like the way Rob Wolf thinks about things. I mean, he's the one that kind of got me thinking about paleo and just like were our ancestors exposed to this, you know, like is this is this something our genetics have evolved to kind of, you know, be is this an optimal situation for our genetics and the way we've, you know, come to be or is this just totally unnatural and weird like these man-made pharmaceutical drugs that are patented um like that's a good way to think about things just as a under you know as a foundational principle and then there's always hunting you know we, we should I, i'm trying to get like an annual hunting trip together where guys like you and zach and you know ben pakulski already told me he was he's in and ben greenfield is also in and what we need to do, I think, is start start like a little hunting group. Every year we go to some interesting place, like go bear hunting or something. And then in the evenings, you sit around the campfire and everybody tells their hunting stories. And we could even open it up to the public to a certain restricted amount of people that, you know, as, as like almost like a little retreat or something. <laughs> yeah, I'd be, I'd be into that. It'd be fun. I, I know you talked about having Zach do a persistent hunt for you and have Zach oh, run, yeah. Them, yeah. run yeah. down some antelope in the, in the, in the, in the, you know, up in the uh, Black Hills or something like that. I don't know. Zach, exactly. you're up for that, right? 
Yeah. I mean, I, I used to hunt when I lived in Wisconsin. I'd gotten away from it the last few years since just kind of moving around a bit, but I'm looking to get back into it. There's great hunting down here in Arizona. So I'm up for anything. I know it's, I hunt on this. So out in South Dakota, I've hunted several times, probably three or four years in, uh, on this guy's land. His name is Ingalls. His last name is Ingalls. I won't tell you his first name because I don't want people flocking over there. <laughs> But he's actually related to Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote wow. these books, like the Little House on the Prairie books. And there's a whole TV show based on that. As you know, Zach, right? Because yeah. you're from the Midwest. But some people like out in Boston have never heard of this. But it's a huge book series. All the kids read it. And I actually hunt on their land. And it's, it's crazy how much. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of acres. You know, in Minnesota here, I used to work on farms. And they were like 10,000 acres up to 30,000 acres. And people thought those were giant ass farms. But you go to South Dakota and there's literally farms that are 100,000 acres. I mean, it's ungodly how big they are. And you can see for miles and miles and miles. So basically, like, you know, I don't want to give away the punchline on what I want to do, but I think it would be a huge media blitz, you know, like if we could pull it off, if we could pull off a persistence hunt, um, it would be a really cool thing to do and something I think nobody's done in North America ever, at least, you know at least within our you know, like modern times. So I think, I think it would be amazing. Well, Zach just set the course record in San Diego last week. And so he's ready to go. He, he can, wow. <laughs> we know I'm good for at least a hundred miles. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll bet you it only takes 20 or 30. Apparently in, in Africa, when they do this with the kudu or whatever they're doing it with, um, it's like 20 or 30 and these pronghorn are weak animals. They're not, uh, you know, like if you shoot a deer or something, they're pretty hardy, you know. It's amazing how far they can run if you let them get their adrenaline and you chase them or something. Whereas pronghorn, it's amazing how the total opposite. They just run over and keel over, you know. You could have kind of a mediocre shot and they'll still run over. I only bow hunt. I've only bow hunted them, but, um, you know, they're they what they do is they sprint really fast and then they stop and they go five miles and then they look back over the hill and then they sprint over here five miles and they look back so you could do a lot of cutting you know you don't have to like mm -hmm. go, you don't have to follow their exact footprints um but I'm, I'm excited about the idea especially if i can get somebody like you who can run because i'm trying to train up to i could easily i could probably run a marathon today if i had to but it would be like <laughs> i couldn't walk the next day kind of thing uh-huh um but i would like to kind of train up to to be involved as much as I could, but I would need somebody who's like a solid backbone, absolute, like, you know, a, a, just a giant in the field of ultra running to really basically run the thing, you know, like physically run. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm in. That's so. it. That's the interesting <laughs> thing. I mean, Zach, as you talk about when you do your recovery from these big races, you go kind of carnivore. Yeah. I would imagine, you know, obviously those hunters that are running for 20, 30 miles chasing down their kudu in Africa. Exactly. I mean, what exactly. are they eating? They're eating the day. Oh, yeah. Maybe that helps with their recovery too. So it's kind of like how the, how the natural right. Thing works. Right. hundred percent. What's that tribe over in Africa? Um, that, that's super carnivore. Um, uh, there's, gosh. there's actually several. I mean, most of these nylotic tribes, a lot of them, you know, obviously there's, there's, there's the Maasai that everybody talks about. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Maasai. That's what I was thinking. So that, that, you know, when I, we were at paleo effects, when I, when I came up and said, hi, I was with a green beret friend of mine and he he lived with the maasai for over a year you know um we'll probably be together again at the uh keto con so we'll probably say hi there i'm pretty sure you're speaking there right or you're there at least yeah yeah i'm i'm, I'm there uh, i guess end of the month. yeah i mean i've been to tanzania and, and and kenya and i've met some of the maasai i mean i went out there and 
nice. They offered me some of their their blood milk mixture, and this is yep, years yep. before I was even in the, in the diet. And I looked at, it, I was like, no, um, not going to do it. I mean, it was, <laughs> like, it was like it was like you know sour milk. You know, it was like flies in there. Yeah, it was like flies. <laughs> you know, sour milk, and it was like clotted blood. And I was like, man, this just does not look appealing. But these guys do it. And they, you know, apparently yeah. it used to be that the the kids, and I think they they were called I can't remember the name. There's something like Spolio, and there was another name for the Warriors. Uh, or the spoli or the guys who are in training be warriors and they would have to go out and actually physically kill a lion. I mean, that was their yeah, yeah. manhood. And now that's been made more or less illegal because lions are protected, obviously. And I, you know, I'm not, right. I don't think we're right. about killing lions, but that is what they did for probably thousands upon thousands of years. It's also interesting. They knock out one of their teeth They usually knock out one of their bottom teeth. And you see, if you look at them and the reason for that is for a lot of reasons, they were getting tetanus. And so they would, you know, they would, they would experience, you know, the lockjaw, they couldn't eat, and so they would be able to feed themselves through a straw, and so that's why they would they would huh. they would just basically, as they got old enough to have adult teeth, they would knock out one of those bottom teeth, and so wow, very interesting. Yeah, that's uh, hardcore. That's what, yeah. was, that's what I've been told. Maybe. It's like natural hockey players, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Primal hockey player. <laughs> Well, good, man. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you in uh, in in uh, in June. Zach, are you going to any more conferences? Are you doing any stuff speaking? No, I, I was wanting to go to keto. Or is it KetoCon or Keto FX down in Austin at the end of June? One of those. KetoCon, yeah. KetoCon. I was going to think of going there, but that's the same weekend as Western States, and uh, my wife's running it, so I'm all hands on deck crewing and pacing that weekend. So well, I'll represent the HBO podcast part of it down there. For there you me. go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a, there's a, you know, I was in, I was in, I spoke at a paleo effects and there's a good couple good barbecue places. So we'll have to hook up for some barbecue. Oh yeah. Like yeah. Think, yeah. Terry Black's or something. A lot of people say yeah. Terry Black's or Franklin's, but there's some, just give me uh they said Brown's barbecue was like a quiet uh, mm. local favorite. So that might be one to try. There's a couple others out there. So I'm in. Yeah. yeah you gotta, you gotta get brisket when you're in Texas. I mean, that, that is kind of like uh you know, a no brainer, I think. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I'll tell you what, Zach, anything else? Um, just anything you want us to plug, Anthony, like where people can find you on social media, books, anything like that? No, not necessarily. I mean, I'm out there. People can Google it. You know, people find me, no problem. I'm on Instagram more actively than Twitter, um, but I'm around. Yeah. Cool. P- appreciate it. Yeah, sounds good. Well, hopefully we'll get some more some more studies, research your way. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm excited about the, 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 the meat aspect of it. So we'll see if we can kind of get more stuff going like that. You know? Yeah. It sounds like Michaela Peterson has done her DNA too. So I, I just have to contact her because, um, uh, a fellow genetic consult, you know, expert who is on the cutting edge of this stuff. She apparently gave him, uh, her, her DNA information. So I know she's pretty amenable to doing that. Um, so even from that perspective, I'm hoping to make some new gains, you know, and understand, and hopefully with your DNA, you know, just understand similarities between people that are really high responders to carnivore, because I think there's a really, you know, there's a time and place for certain groups of people where it's really helpful, you know? Yeah. Well, that'd be interesting. Well, anyway, cool. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, Anthony. And I look forward to meet, seeing you again uh, in a couple yeah. weeks, man. Thanks guys. Yeah. Take care, Anthony. Thanks. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.